Jay Dobbins, before he was Jaybird, talks about his experience trying out at the NFL Combine. I'd been a football fan since I was a kid, and Al Davis was on the field that day with his scorecard. Al Davis of the Raiders. The, the and that, that was the original f- Oakland Raiders. Oh, he was, I mean, he, he had his fingers in, in the NFL business and the AFL business before the NFL. He was an icon of the league. And I went up to um, Coach Davis and I said, uh, I introduced myself. I said, how am I doing? And he's looking at his score sheet and he's running his, he's running his name down the thing. He's running his finger down the list. Dobbins, Dobbins, Dobbins. Oh, here you are. He goes, yep. You're the fastest slow guy I've seen today. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? I was undeterred. I was like, you know what? I'm going to show you too. At at one point I asked a co where we're standing there and and there's guys running around and I I was talking to one of the coaches and I said, well, what do you think? And he points to, uh, Andre Reed, and he said, you see that kid? He's a first rounder. He points to Jerry Rice. He said, you see him? I said, he, like, he's, he's a sure fire bet. He's like, here's the problem you have. You catch the ball like those guys do, but I can't coach you to run like they do. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Hello, players, everybody. Welcome back to Game of Crimes. I am Morgan Wright, the most interesting podcast host on this podcast, and I'm here literally with my partner in crime who's hacking up a lung, sick, moved to Florida, the traitorous bastard. Steve Murphy. Everybody calls me Murph. You sound like shit. Thank you very much. I've got my my sexy voice on today, my low voice. i got some sinus issues going. voice on, Yeah. <laughs> We both have been getting over this stuff. I, I had a touch of the Omicron, and you could tell it in my voice, too, man. It hurt. Yeah, and, and you're uglier than ever now. It's a good thing, you know, you got a face for radio. That's what you say, but I still have all my hair, pal. Still have all my hair. Anyway. Hey, I've still got like 27. 27 of them. I got Pull a one out. I like, I hate odd numbers. Go to 26. Uh, 28. 28. Hey, anyway, guys, thank you for joining us. Uh, Just some quick housekeeping before we get into this. This is going to be a great episode. Uh, Head on over to Apple and Spotify. Both have got the ability to rate us, give us five stars. We are working hard every day, and we may be announcing a kind of a way we do our format. We're still going to have guests, but we're going to rethink this a little bit, you know, in this new year, and we're going to want your input. So uh, we'll talk about that here in a little bit, but just let you know, we, we're always constantly trying to evolve and change things based upon your feedback. So head on over there. Give us your feedback. Give us those five stars. We are the hardest working podcast hosts in po- in podcasting. So Absolutely. Also, head on over to our website for everything, including GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We have our new book list out there. And, of course, Murph's book, you know, him and JP, first book on the list because they were the first be. episode. Where, where it, it should, should be, be. right? Manhunters, yeah. how we took down Pablo Escobar and have been talking about it ever since. That's the sub-subtitle. But uh, And how we made a hit series called Narcos on Netflix about it. So <laughs> <laughs> if only you would have known that back then. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. But hey, I guarantee you, you're going to want to go to our book list because when we tell you about who our guest is for this episode, he's got a couple books out. You're going to want to read them. So head on over there. Also follow us on the socials at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be, this is the place where all the cool people hang. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have got 
amazing, amazing. I, I mean, I'm saying this it sounds self-serving, but dude, it really is. We got great content on there that you will not hear anywhere else. Right. And it's amazing. It's, it's shocking to know how much we've got on there. I think we've got as much on there, if not more than we do on the regular podcast. Yeah. And you look, guys, it's original content too. This is, we're not, we are not reading just from a story in the headlines and just repeating what's in there. Like, some people do. I'm not mm-hmm. going to call out names, but you're getting authentic, real stories. We just got done recording one yesterday. It's authentic. It's about the inside story of the LAPD Rampart scandal from the captain who was there. Mm-hmm. This is where they've made eight movies about it, including Training Day and Denzel Washington. You're not going to get that anywhere else, but on our podcast, and then we go deeper on that on Game of Crimes uh, on Patreon. So patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Head on over there. We got, like I said, a ton of great stuff. Also go to paypal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes. Whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you even more exciting content. But as always, we've got a quick disclaimer. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We do take the story seriously, but... We never, never take ourselves serious. If we ever do, call us down on it. That's right. Call us out on it. So, hey, but before we get into the rest of this and tell you what does we got going on, guess what time it is, Murph? What time is it? It's it is time, time for, for Small, Small Town, Town Police, Police Blotter. Oh, man, and there's a couple good ones on this one this time. And all of these are come from our players out there. This is all player-supported, uh, player-provided. So, love it. Hey, the love first it. one. Oh, I know. Love it. Heidi Overman says... Uh, <laughs> another one from northern Wisconsin. This comes to us from Lady Wis- Lady Smith, Wisconsin, population 3,126. Salute. <laughs> Guess what, Steve? January 3rd, 9.43 a.m. Report of an invisible space alien invasion happening in the city of Ladysmith. Mm, okay. <laughs> if, if they're invisible, how do they if know? If it's invisible, how do you know? Yeah. <laughs> At 9.43 a.m., you think you might do that at nighttime. Yeah, I'm telling you, a killer, hey, look, the zombie apocalypse is for real, people. <laughs> Believe it, and it's going to start, apparently it's starting in Ladysmith, Wisconsin. Oh, my. Well, that's where I would start, wouldn't you? It is, absolutely. 3,162 people in that town, or 26. <laughs> you know, I got, gets me good odds, so. Oh, hey, this next one comes to us from Gary Warden Jr. Gary sends us this, and it's kind of funny, Murph. Have you always seen the signs out there? You know, people always think that cops hide behind billboards, you know, running mm-hmm. speed traps and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So this deli in uh, someplace in um, Pennsylvania, I believe, put up a sign, and it said, slow down. The cop hides behind this sign. By the way, fish fry, 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. on Friday. So... <laughs> The police department goes out, puts their cruiser behind it, takes a picture of it, and says, well, I guess the joke's on us, SMH, you know, shaking our head. Good one, PJ's Deli. However, it turns out the sign wasn't put up to give away the hiding cop car because you don't really hide behind there. According to the Deli's owner, the sign was put out there to prevent dangerous driving, and the police never used to hide their car. Instead, they saw it, pulled their car up there, posted it on their Facebook page. I mean, that's called being thirsty (laughs) in social media. I mean, they are just trolling, trolling for likes. Well, that, I mean, that's pretty good advertising. That's that's an attention getter, right? It is. And, you know, but what do you do? It's like when the weatherman says, hey, it's going to rain, and you don't believe the weatherman. The weatherman's never right, but what do you still do? You still take an umbrella. Yeah. yeah. You act as though it's that way, right? Well, and it's kind of cool that the PD had a, a good sense of humor about it, too. 
Yeah, it is. You know, and by the way, one of these days there will be a cop hiding behind that sign. <laughs> Everybody's going to believe there's nobody there until the day somebody is there. But by the way, let's finish up. Eric J. Hackbarth. He says, meanwhile, still in Wisconsin, not sure what the issue is. Steve, there was a report in the Lynn area of Wooddale and Valley for three little ponies wearing jackets. Oh, um, okay. Now, that's not so much the thing. It's some of the comments on the Game of Crimes uh, fan page. Uh-oh. Christy Kelly says, um, this sounds adorable. Maybe they're just letting folks know so they can drive past and take a look. If you're having a gloomy day, enjoy cute ponies and coats. But... Terry Burroughs nailed it because she remembered our episode with Michael Neal. And remember, maybe you should let Mike Neal know. I mean, he wore My Little Pony stickers on his uniform. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, that is funny. And that, that just remembered, that just brought up an old idea. When when uh, our daughters were younger and I was traveling a lot with DEA, they would put uh, these little uh, SpongeBob stickers all over my suitcase. And you go through an airport, especially when you show up to the hotel and there's other cops and tough guys standing around there looking like, it. oh, it's cute. SpongeBob, huh? Yeah, Thank but hey, you. look, it's when your daughters. daughters put a sticker on there, it's you represent. They're probably still on there. Probably still on there. Well, hey, I got one for you, Murph, and you're yep. going to get this one right. I'm going to give you the opportunity to start the year off right. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah. So what year was it? This comes to us from the smelter out of my old home state of Kansas. This comes to us from Pittsburgh, Kansas, from the newspaper called The Smelter on April 15th. Okay. And I'll give you the year, and I'll see if you can guess it later. All right? Okay. But this is actually pretty cool. This is about Jesse James. Jesse's dead. The bold bandit and outlaw Jesse James shot dead in his own house. Personal reminiscence of the gang. Basically, the man said to be Jesse James was killed by his Confederate Robert Ford in a St. Joseph has been fully identified. The house where he was killed is a framed building about a story and a half high. The wife of the outlaw first insisted that the name of the dead man was Howard, but later made a full confession of the whole affair, along with the history of robberies in which her husband had been engaged. They were living in Kansas City, but moved to St. Joseph's where they hoped Jesse could reside in peace and earnest on and earn an honest living. <laughs> That'd right. be something different. All right, so Steve, what year was it? Was it April 15th, 1882, April 15th, 1882, or April 15th, 1882? Let me think. I see. I think it's in the 18th century, and it's probably in the 1880s, probably 1882. Uh, well, Steve, you are you only get half credit. It's the 19th century. It's not the 18th century. Oh, it is the break. 19th century. <laughs> But did I get it right? 1882? <laughs> you got it right. Yay. Hey, guess what? The throwdown. Uh, I'll start the year off for you. That was kind you just of a throwdown. You screwed up my average, man. I was, I was 100% wrong. Well, you were still, you didn't get this one 100% right either. So you got the, you got the century wrong. You just should have, it's like, it's like Jeopardy. Just give the answer. Don't embellish. Uh, whatever. All right. Let's move well, on hey. to a good interview. All right. Well, yeah, let's do this. This is a this is one of our most requested guests. People want to hear from him. And it has a been a great setup, the fact that we had Steve Cook mm-hmm. give us a master class the previous week on outlaw motorcycle gangs. And we got a lot of comments back from people. They loved hearing about this. So it only seemed natural, Steve, that we follow up the history of outlaw motorcycle gangs with somebody who is legendary. In the investigation of outlaw motorcycle gangs, the only law enforcement officer ever to really penetrate the Hell's Angel gang. And when you hear this guy's story, it's more than what you see. It's more than what you think. 
This dude is a legend. J. Jaybird Dobbins is our guest this week, Stephen. I'm telling you, the stories he told us and as humble as he was just blew me away. He is. I mean, you look at the pictures of him and you can see pictures on our website. Take a look. This is a tough guy. I mean, he's, he's, he's maxed out. He's looking good. He's buffed. He's got the man. I mean, that picture of him where he's got his head tilted back and he's got the bandana on. I'm thinking that's why they give cops gun is to shoot people like that, to protect yourself. But I would have arrested somebody like him on the spot in the days. Like that's probable cause to arrest the way you look, pal. But but you mentioned how humble he was. And that is so surprising. He is (laughs) unbelievable. It's, uh, you just, you meet the guy, you love him. You know, I'm just, I'm hoping I get an opportunity to meet him in person sometime, but, uh, you're going to hear some raw emotion come out, you know, especially when he starts talking about his family. Cause as you've heard us talk about before, you know, the, our families suffer because of the sacrifices that we make for our jobs, but that means the family's sacrificing as well. So wait till you hear how it affected his family and not in a good way, but you know, thank the good Lord, Gwen, his wife hung in there with him and the kids hung in there with him and. I don't want to spoil the story for you, but this is one of the one of the best stories I've ever heard. I mean, I love it. I love it. And wait till you hear what he's doing now. Well, and the other thing, though, too, is he, he used a phrase. He said, I inflicted a lot of battle damage on my family. And, and he's very raw about that. But then when you hear about how he got treated by his own agency oh. after he had threats against his life made, after they burned down his house, uh, this, this one, and there is a tie-in we're not going to spoil it. You're going to have to mm-hmm. hear towards the end, but Jay's got two books out. You're going to find them on our website. And we talk about those during the episode. So Steve, the only way we can hear about that. And the only way people can find out what we're talking about is I have to ask you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all the game of crimes? Hey everybody, this is one where you really do need to get in, sit down, shut up and hold on, bring on Jaybird Dobbins. This is fantastic. So guys, this has been one of the most requested episodes when we told you we were doing outlaw motorcycle gangs or, you know, uh, undercover people. This guy's name came up more often than not. And so that's a great recognition about your work. So, hey, let's welcome Jay Jaybird Dobbins. Jaybird, welcome. Thank you guys for having me and welcome to your audience. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, well, I'm, I'm telling you, everybody... I was surprised the name recognition you had. Not surprised because our players are are dialed in, but the name recognition. Everybody says, can you get Jaybird on? Can you get Jaybird on? I think you and Connie, Steve's wife, the the previous episode we did uh, before Steve Cook. By the way, Steve Cook will be on right before you, so you're following Steve Cook. I saw your comment about the cheesy uh, tattoo he had on his arm. Somebody Or somebody said uh, something about a cheesy tattoo. He said, that's Lou Velozzi did. said, that's all you got. He had like one little barbed wire thing across his bicep. He goes, that's pretty weak, man. <laughs> we wouldn't be who we are if we weren't busting each other's balls. I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's absolutely right. So, hey, That's man, right. so welcome again. Like, I just want you to know everybody's been asking for this. And, you know, ready, having read your first book and getting ready to start your second one, just I love the style. I love the fascination. But as with everybody, we always start with how the hell did you get into law enforcement? And you have actually got a really interesting story because – you thought you were going to go pro because you were this big Division One tight end for the University of Arizona Wildcats. Yeah, my entrance to law enforcement was very much unplanned and nonlinear. 
um, I had a plan A and my plan A was to play professional football. And I never considered a plan B. I, I had an overinflated sense of who I was as a football player. And I took for granted that I would continue after college as a football player, you know, as a professional. Um, I went to the, well, I had a, a, a very good college career. Uh, I went to the 1985 NFL Combine, and this was my chance. Hey, before was, you get into yeah. the Combine, um, yeah. did you, did you, now you played all, did you start all four years? What was your path, you know, through football? And tell us a little bit about the position you played, the games you played. Did U of A go to any bowl games? You know, tell us, give us some fun stuff before we get into the serious stuff. Yeah, sure. I, um, I was, I was very highly recruited out of high school. Um, probably by today's standards and using uh, today's measuring sticks, I probably would have been a four-star wide receiver coming out of high school. I had lots of offers to go different places. I actually went to the University of Arkansas my first year. Um, I played for Lou Holtz, um, who's, you know, Ooh. football fans out there. I mean, go he's, Irish. he's a, he's a legend. He's, yep. he's, he's everything that he's, um, uh, portrayed did, to be. And did he talk to you like Lou Holtz talked to you? And, uh, did he chew your, he, he, I think he chewed your ass out one time, didn't he? Well, he did, you know, um, Really, the only thing I've ever been good at in my life is standing up to bullies. And Coach Holtz was bullying one of my teammates at practice one day. Uh, the kid had missed a block. And he had him by the face mask, and he was jerking him around and screaming in his face. And he said, that's the worst football play I've ever seen in my life. That was the worst block I've ever seen. From now on, your name is Alice, because Alice is the biggest sissy name I can think of. So all I wanted to do was take some heat off my boy. And I tapped Coach Holtz on the shoulder and I said, Coach, if he's Alice, what do you call me? And he turned on his heels without missing a beat and said, son, I call you a recruiting mistake. Oh, so man, that's, that's a tough one to absorb in front of your teammates, you know, and everybody just was like, Ooh, dude, you walked into that, man. You asked for that one. Um, now, was he trying to push my buttons? Did he really feel that way? Um, I'm not sure I gave him much of a chance to uh, either of us to figure that out because I transferred to the University of Arizona. And why did you transfer? You know, I transferred It's it, without getting into a whole lot of detail on it. I always wanted to play at the University of Arizona. It was my hometown team. But at the time I was being recruited, Arizona was on the verge of going on probation for some uh, violations that had com been committed by the previous staff. I didn't want to get in the middle of the probation. And Coach Holtz sold me on Arkansas. I went there, um, came back after the new staff had been hired at Arizona, thinking that I had avoided the probation. And actually, the probation sanctions hit once I was at Arizona, they were applied retroactively. So my attempt to escape and my like my clever solution to how this went down, I walked right into the teeth of it anyways. So hey, while I was at Arizona, we were on probation the entire time I was there. Hey, well, Jay, the other thing too, it's not like it is now with the, the got the transfer portal and stuff. It used to be, especially NCAA Division One, like you were at. If you transferred, you had to sit out a year. Did you? Was there an exemption, or did you have to sit out a year when you made the transfer? I did. I sat out a year. You know, I was a, a scout team member for a year, and uh, got my head caved in every day. 
you know, on behalf of the guys that were actually playing on Saturdays, trying to help them. Uh, but, you know, during my college career, uh, not so much what I did, but like who I played against at times is, is really remarkable to me now that I look back. Uh, when I was at Arkansas, I played against Eric Dickerson when he was at SMU. Before he went to the Rams and just ran all over everybody. Well, he ran all over us in college too, but <laughs> yes. Um, uh, I played against Mike Singletary, who was a linebacker at Baylor. Um, when I got to Arizona, I played against Marcus Allen. I played against John Elway. Um, I John Elway against, was Stanford? He was at Stanford, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so really, like in, in retrospect, in hindsight, not so much what I did, but what I'm really um, happy about is that I shared the field with some of the greatest all-time Hall of Famers, uh, football players, Hall mm -hmm. of Famers, man. So, like the best people to ever put on helmets and shoulder pads. Like I got to see them play in person. Cool. Did you I, ever? Did you ever meet uh, a guy from Baylor named Keith Bishop? I I did not. He ended up going, I think, eight years with the Broncos, and then became a DEA agent, believe it or not. But he made All Pro when he was with the Broncos. Well, he he uh, he took a step up from the NFL and became a DEA agent. Bless his heart. There you go. <laughs> could have been worse. He, he could have gone to the FBI. Yeah. <laughs> well, now he's now he's VP of security for the Broncos. He went back after retirement. Oh, cool. Yeah, we might have him on the show here. Yeah. Oh, that well, that'd be awesome too. Because uh, I'm sure he put a few hits on people. So <laughs> that's definitely an episode I'd love to listen to. Because I'm sure he's got some crazy stories in both worlds. Oh, he finished up in Afghanistan. He was doing some crazy stuff over there. Was was he there the same time Joe Piersante was? No, I think he was already retired by the time Joe got there. Okay. You drug chasers got all the good stories. <laughs> no, no, no. You, We got some good stories here, too. Uh, as we found out, we won't get too much into detail, but uh, you and I uh, talked, uh, Jay Bird, that we both had somebody in common, somebody I used to work with that you did, that one of the facts of life, and we'll, we'll dive into this later in the episode, but it, working this kind of work takes a toll on you, and this guy tried to kill himself, uh, missed, but... Um, yeah, but that was one of the things we found out when we got to talking. Yeah, we knew the same guy. You nailed it. You knew who he was. And so, I mean, it just tells you what it is. It's a small world. But let's go back to the uh, football thing for just a second. What's the hardest hit you ever took in football, if you remember who gave it to you? I, I do. I, I remember it uh, very foggily. Um, I would like to remember <laughs> it clearly, but um, I um, actually, I, I caught a slant playing against uh, University of Southern California, USC, in the Coliseum in Los Angeles. I caught a slant and got hit by a linebacker uh, named Jack Del Rio, who, who went on to a professional career and actually made a, a bigger name as a coach for himself. And so, man, I mean, I got mashed. And I was down. I was face dirt, face down in the dirt in the Coliseum. And there's 70,000 people there. And I'm, my eyes are open. But it's nothing but blackness. It's nothing but dark. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this dude has blinded me in front of 70,000 people. So I crawl up to my hands and knees, and there's blood pouring out of my mouth. And I start to see some light coming through. Like, I'm starting to see some light. And there's a little spot of light, and it's getting bigger. And actually, that spot of light was coming through the ear hole of my helmet because he had turned my <laughs> helmet sideways. Oh, damn. So I got Oh, my up, God. You know, when, I, when I was a kid, 
my dad, uh, one of the many lessons my dad taught me was that you always have to get up, get up, fight back. If you don't fight back, there's always going to be someone out there bigger and stronger. And if you don't fight back, you're going to spend the rest of your life as a victim. Fight back. Get up. And so those words were ringing in my head as I was trying to crawl to my feet. So I got up, my head's spinning, I'm bleeding, I get in the huddle, and I've got my hands on my knees, and I'm waiting for the next play to come in, and there's a delay, there's a stall. I'm like, like, like send the play in. And I get a pat on the ass, and it's from one of the USC players. He's like, dude, your huddle's over there. I got a <laughs> USC huddle. Oh, man. Oh, the first of many undercover infiltration assignments by Jay Dobbins. <laughs> I'm infiltrating so the USC huddle. I know what I'm doing to, here. Yeah, yeah, I kind of stumbled my way back to our huddle, to the Arizona huddle, and the USC guys are laughing at me, and my guys are laughing at me. And um, that might be uh, a thumbnail nutshell of, of my career. Catch a pass, get wiped out, get knocked out, get laughed at. <laughs> and end up in the wrong huddle. And end up in the wrong huddle, exactly. <laughs> but you know what? You left a lasting impression on everybody there. <laughs> oh, my God. All I can think of is that helmet turned sideways on your head. Go to the that light. Follow the follow light. Follow the it's light. There. <laughs> well, what, what Disney movie was that? Nemo? Finding Nemo? Yeah. yeah. Follow the light. Yeah. That's oh, good. my God. So, thank you for sharing that. That's funny. That, I did not see that one coming. I, when I asked that, it's just, oh, let's, you know, and the fact that you remember it, you know, like you say, foggily, very foggily, you know? I'm full of disappointing surprises. You'll see. <laughs> now, I've read, I've read the majority of the book and read a lot of stuff about you. You're not disappointing at all. Yeah. Hey, so again, so now let's fast forward then, or let's talk about that. So now you complete your college career. What'd you major in? I was a public administration major. And um, I'll tell you, I was started off as a business administration major. And there comes a path in the curriculum between uh, public administration and business administration. The business path, you had to take uh, like these like complex math courses. And I was like following the path of least resistance. Like I said, I did not have a plan B. My plan A was to get through school and play football. So I was just trying to follow the easiest path to get my paper out of college. So I became, uh, I, I steered away from the business side and more towards the admin side because it was an easier path. It, it, it suited no my math. intellect yeah. to take the easy path. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, you know, hey, but that's, you know, I, I did that too. I did music, believe it or not. I was a music major in college. I wasn't recruited like you uh, were, you know, for football. I didn't have that much athletic talent, but I can well, play Well, I know few. you're a Notre Dame fan, and uh, we actually, Arizona, went to South Bend, and I was uh, played in the game and, and oh, had a did. critical role in, a, in beating Notre Dame in South Bend, uh, 1982, 16-13, on a last-second 45-yard field goal by Arizona's uh, field goal kicker, Max Zendejas. Well, fuck you then. This interview's over, man. I can't, I can't <laughs> deal with this. I'm sorry. No, okay, that's all right. I consider myself <laughs> fucked. <laughs> we'll continue, Jay. Yeah, we'll continue. I'm just kidding. But don't ever let it happen again. So, uh, <laughs> Well, what was your role? You said you had a role in it. What was your role? I caught a couple passes in that game and 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 played a lot and uh, and I'll tell you like as a as a young man who was just like living the dream 
um, to to go to South Bend and all the history that took place in that yeah. stadium from from Newt Rockney all the way up through Era and and all the great players and all Americans and legends that have been built there. It was super cool to just play in a football game against that team in that stadium. And and touchdown Jesus too, man. You gotta you, you see touchdown Jesus over there. But you know they've changed the stadium so much. They've done something they've never done before, which they weren't doing during your time. They didn't have lights at that time. Every game at Notre Dame Stadium was during the day. Well, you know, touchdown Jesus like hangs over that end zone. And then I took that theme and converted it to my professional work. And then I referred to myself as undercover Jesus. (laughs) UCJ. What would undercover Jesus do? So... (laughs) He this would, is, he would, he would not do a lot of the things I did. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and if he did, he would, you know, he would uh, take one gun and multiply it into a hundred guns and make a good case. But, uh, you know, so, uh, Morgan, I'm picking up yeah. on a, on a theme here with Jay. I think we're seeing somebody that's being awfully humble, not wanting to tell his real accomplishments here. Oh, we're going to pull it out. We're going to pry it out of him. You know, you um, he is under oath, you know, stand by for cross-examination. So, uh, you know, another one of the lessons my dad taught me young that like so many of the things he said, it didn't make sense until I was older. Um, and, and I think humility and graciousness is, is an important part of, uh, a solid character base. And my dad told me, if you're good at something, you don't have to tell people about it. You don't have to brag on it. They're already going to know. Well, well, it's, that, it's like that old saying, if you have to toot your own horn, it's not worth tooting. You've done a lot of things. So we're going to get into that. So we'll just, we'll just tell the story and we'll let everybody decide for themselves. But uh, so plan A, there was no plan B, there was no C, D, or E, there was just plan A. So Tell us about that. You 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 get your degree, you get your paper, you know, and now you've got the NFL combines. Were you were you recruited? I mean, how did the combines work? How, you know, I mean, I follow it, but I'm not a huge pro football fan. But how did the combines work? How do you get there? Do you have to have an invitation? Yeah, how's that work? Yeah, you're invited uh, by the the NFL to participate in what, in essence, is their meat market for college football players. Mm-hmm. And you show up, and they not only give you intellectual tests and and conduct personal interviews with you, but you're stripped down uh, to just your shorts. They take pictures of you like near naked. Um, You're measured, you're weighed. I mean, like every uh, possible variable is covered. I mean, they measure the width of your hands. They spread your hand out and see what the measurement is between your pinky and your thumb. They measure your wingspan. They see how tall you are, how much you weigh. You run, you jump, you lift weights um, for, uh, I was a receiver for the receivers, you know, you run and catch passes um, and it's all done, you know, on a scorecard and filmed and what they're trying to do uh, each team, each scout, each coach is trying to find people that they feel will fit and benefit their organization. How many people go to the combines when you went there? How big of an audience did they have? When when you take all the players from all the positions, there's several hundred young men out there. Um, much like today, it's formatted a little bit different today than it was. This was very early in the combine process. Um, they've really refined it now. Um, but man, there's there's young athletes. Um, all over the place, running drills all over the place, all with the same goal, all with the same desire to like make their name and show off and prove themselves that they're worthy of being drafted and, and, and being placed on an NFL team. At the combine, what percentage of people who show up actually make it into the NFL? 
I, I think a large majority of those kids get a shot. Not all of them get drafted. Um, to be invited, you know, you're probably going to get your shot. Uh, like I was on that like outside skewed percentage where it just didn't work out. Um, but most of those, most of those young men um, get a chance and have earned a chance to at least compete for a, a professional job where they're going to get paid to play the game they love. Mm-hmm. Well, you had some stiff competition because tell us about that. Hold on the names for a second, but tell us about, you know, your combine, the things they had you run. And by the way, too, when you went to the combine, give us your, give us your, just your main vitals, height and weight. Yeah, I was six one, 180 pounds. I was very average in height. Um, you know, over the last 40 years, I've eaten my way into a three-point stance. Um, <laughs> but like, I was just a skinny kid. Um, I, I like, I was, you know, I was, I was athletic. Um, I, I like, I was, I was a decent athlete, not spectacular. Um, but I go to the combine and they, they group you up. They put you in groups of, of people to work out with together and you're going through the process. And so one of the guys in my, in my little cluster was from Cutstown state. And I, I'd never heard of it. You know, I asked him, I said, dude, where's Cutstown? He's like, oh, it's in Pennsylvania, you know, and I'm, I shake hands with him and I'm, I say, hey, good luck, have a great day. And internally, my internal dialogue is saying, man, I'm going to whip your ass today, dude. Like, I never heard of Cutstown. Like, like, I was a star in the Pac-10, which is the most, which at that point, at least, was the most dynamic offensive conference in the country. I was like, man, I'm going to show all you guys what time it is today. Um, another guy in my group was from a little school in Mississippi. You know, these guys were the same size as me, plus or minus, same build as me. So we start running and jumping and doing all the testing. And 10 minutes into the drills, I realized that my plan A had crashed. I, I couldn't do what these, what these, what my peers could do with these with these guys I was paired up with. I just couldn't do what they could do. I couldn't jump as high. I couldn't run as fast. I wasn't as as athletic. I wasn't as graceful. I wasn't as talented or as skilled as they were. And so with no plan B, like I'm on the grass in my cleats, knowing that like my life plan had died in 10 minutes. Um, and it was, you know, I like I continued through the drills and I continued to compete and do my best. But in hindsight, the kid from Cutstown State was Andre Reed, who ended up uh, being a first-round draft choice of the Bills, played 15 years for the Bills, and is in the Hall of Fame, and was on all those Bills glory teams, those Super Bowl teams with Jim Kelly, um, an absolute beast of a football player. And the kid that was from the small school in Mississippi went to Mississippi Valley State. It was Jerry Rice. It was arguably, oh man, like we didn't know who these guys were at the time. But now, like again, in retrospect, Jerry Rice is arguably, and I mean, I can make a strong argument for this, the greatest football player to ever put on a helmet or shoulder pads. And like, I was like shoulder to shoulder with him when we were young men. Um, and both Andre and Jerry helped convince me that I sucked as a football player. <laughs> They convinced you or they just showed you. <laughs> they they put on a personal demonstration right before my own eyes that I could not do what they could do. Yeah. Your coach wow. actually gave you some advice too. Something about what what were you saying that he could a couple things he could and could not coach you on? Well, uh 
we're wandering around between these drills and I, uh, I'd been a football fan since I was a kid and Al Davis was on the field that day with his scorecard, Al Davis of the Raiders, the, the, and that, that was the original f- Oakland Raiders. Oh, he was, I mean, he, he had his fingers in, in the NFL business and the AFL business before the NFL. I mean, he was, he was an icon of the league. And I went up to, um, coach Davis and I said, uh, I introduced myself. I said, how am I doing? And he's looking at his score sheet and he's running his, he's running his name down the thing. He's running his finger down the list. Dobbins, Dobbins, Dobbins. Oh, here you are. He goes, yep. You're the fastest slow guy I've seen today. <laughs> and you know what? I was undeterred. I was like, you know what? I'm going to show you too. At, at one point I asked a co where we're standing there and, and there's guys running around. And I, I was talking to one of the coaches and I said, well, what do you think? Like, you know, asking about myself, what do you think? And he points to uh, Andre Reed and he said, you see that kid? He's a first rounder. He points to Jerry Rice. He said, you see him? I said, he, like, he's, he's a sure fire bet. He's like, here's the problem you have. You catch the ball like those guys do, but I can't coach you to run like they do. I can't coach you to run any faster. You can't teach speed. Well, and as it turned out, you know, um, like I ran a four, six, I would like, and, and four, six is, is, is not slow. It's not NFL speed, but if you're, uh, if you're six, one and 180 pounds, you better be faster than four, six. Now four, six in Copland, like I, that was six. Dude, you'd be smoking. Yeah. I was a fast yeah. cop. I was just yeah. a slow NFL player. <laughs> well, so plan a kind of goes up in smoke 10 minutes, you know, into your dream. So when does the realization hit you is that I got to find a plan B? Well, you know, I hung on for a bit. I played for a short period of time in the Canadian football league. I played in the uh, old USFL um, uh, before kidding. the league folded. Um, and what actually year did Flutie end up, Flutie ended up in the CFL, right? He did. And you know what? And, and, uh, at that same combine I was at Doug Flutie was there. He was the Heisman trophy winner. He was, he was a celebrity amongst, you know, these, all these future NFL guys, because he had the Heisman trophy in his back pocket. Uh, Randall Cunningham was at that combine. Um, there were some really amazing football players that came out of that class. Um, wow. That, that's, that's like, that's pretty cool. I mean, even if you didn't make it, just to be there with them. That's it's just that's to walk the field with these people who, I mean, you're talking, how many of those, how many Hall of Famers were out of your combine? I They're, mean, 15, 20? Man, it was like, like maybe the most flattering uh, part of my, the big picture, the 30,000 foot view of my football career is that I actually got to the point where I was able to be on the same grass with those guys and compete with them and rub shoulders with some of these guys who were like, uh, like they entertained us as fans, as, as some of the most remarkable football players to ever play the game. Mm. Yeah. How yeah. many people get to say they were on the same field as a Jerry Rice or a Doug Flutie or an Andre Reed? I mean, Randall Cunningham. I mean, these are names that uh, I watch enough football, but you know, pro football, but it's like, man, these are everybody. If you, if you watch any pro football at all, everybody knows these names. You know, at the time we, we didn't at the time we knew that they were like exceptional college football players and they were college football stars. We didn't know exactly who they would turn out to be professionally. And like, like I'm, and I'm fans of all those guys. 
um, from the personal connection, from the loose personal connection I had to them. But as a fan of the game, them watching them play on Sundays, um, I can honestly say that I was never jealous or envious of them. I was a fan of them. Mm-hmm. I was like, man, this is really cool. These guys are living the dream. I wish I was. I'm not. But I wasn't. I didn't have any animosity for them. Like, why mm-hmm. them, not me? I was super impressed with them that 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 their plan A came true. Well, it's got to be awesome, though, too, to look on Sunday and go, you know what? Maybe I wasn't as good as these guys, but I at least for a while occupied the same field as these guys. You know, I, I you know chewed up some of the same ground. I mean, it's still to look back on it and go... Hey, you, but you know what? You got the shot that what maybe 1% of college players get. Absolutely. And, and in hindsight, like I'm, I'm flattered by that. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not uh, impressed or at least overly impressed with my uh, football career or accomplishments, but, but I am proud of what I accomplished. Like, like I downplay things and I, and I try to be gracious about how I conduct myself, but I'm proud of what I accomplished. I got every single bit of the the talent and 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 God's blessing that he had given me to get to that point that there was I, I didn't leave anything behind there was I have no regrets um there was nothing left for me to do to try to become a better football player than I ultimately became I I, I got every bit out of the God-given ability that I was graced with yeah, it's not like you had an injury and you go, well, if it wasn't been for that injury, I would have been here. It's like, no, you gave it your all. And by the way, did you notice how I already worked in? You were already a one percenter. So we're going to talk about the one percenter later. You see, notice how I slid that right in on you, Jay? I did. Zero excuses, zero blame. <laughs> um, and and um, th- th- this is not false humility. It's just a statement of fact. I just wasn't good enough. The standards are extremely high to 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 play in that league. I just wasn't good enough. But, but you know, but the thing is, like you say, I like the way you look back on it. Rather than blaming anything and being jealous of guys, you go, look, I gave it my all. I did the best that I could. It is what mm-hmm. it is. So where does plan B come from? But you know so what, you do, you AF, know, Morgan, isn't that life, though? Isn't that like whatever we do is that uh, succeed or fail? If we can look back and say, man, I did my best. And it doesn't need to be perfect. It's like perfection. I left it all on the field. I, did I tried my I hardest. I did the mm-hmm. best I could every day. Um, those lessons learned, even behind failure in football, translated, you know, into my professional life. I just wanted to do my best. Well, it's right. a fact of life, too. You you tend to learn more from failures than from success because success goes to your head, but failures really tell you, here, I got to work on some things. Here's what I need to do. Here's the mistakes I can avoid. So failure, people look at failure as a bad thing, but failure is a great teacher if you've got the right mindset for it. As, as athletes, people that are running businesses, trying to run a family, uh, trying to like have successful relationships, I, th- I think that, uh, at least in my case, you have to fail in order to succeed. You have to fail. Um, you know, like one of my problems is that uh, wisdom is always something that came to me right after I needed it. Um, it's called hindsight. <laughs> yeah. Gee, look at this. If I'd only done this, yes, wisdom is, is, is what you get after the fact, not before oh, the fact. If I'd only picked those numbers, I'd have won the Super Bowl lottery or the Powerball lottery, whatever it is out there. I pick exactly. the right, I pick, I have a 100% record of picking the right Powerball numbers the after day after. Fact. After the fact, yeah, you know, so <laughs> yeah, that's the problem with psychics too. Psychics can't tell you the Powerball number. If you're really a psychic, what are the winning numbers? Right, you know, right? Oh, I can't you know, use that things, for my own. One of the good things about your story, though, Jay, is that you're, you know, you're, 
you're not afraid to tell us what really happened and you're not sitting here whining about it. Well, if only, you know, and then Al Davis didn't like me. And, you know, what if I'd been out there when Jerry Rice wasn't there, what I've done better, you know, you accepted the circumstances and you've moved on. So that, that's very admirable. Well, you know, people that, um, that have an excuse or someone to blame for everything that doesn't work out in their life. Um, they preach, they project a pathetic image yes. of, of who they are. And the, the truth is, is that 90% of the people out there don't care about what your problems are. The other 10% are happy you have them. So mm -hmm. what? Mm -hmm. So what? No one cares. Keep moving forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will tell you too, and you, you speak of that. I just read this book. There's a great book out there by a, a professor named Carol S. Dweck. It's called Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. You just hit upon one of the key things. It's the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And you're going to see this. The reason I'm saying that is we're going to get into this because you had the growth mindset. Fixed mindset blames everybody for the problems. You know, I don't want to take a risk because I might fail. And then everybody will think I'm not smart and I'm not great. Whereas on the other hand, you're willing to unzip your fly and just let it go and just try stuff, which, uh, you know, gets into, you, you tried the, the USFL, you tried the CFL. Uh, how long did that last before you said, eh, I got to come up with another plan B? Um, it didn't last long. Uh, I, I had a short stint in the, uh, in the CFL. Um, I played for the Ottawa Rough Riders. My, uh, my quarterback there at Ottawa um, was uh, a star player at Oklahoma who later became a congressman from Oklahoma, J.C. Watts. C. Watts, yeah. And then when I went to the USFL, actually the coolest thing about being in the USFL, I was I was on the Arizona Outlaws when the league folded, when they they won their lawsuit but lost their lawsuit. The 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 USFL won their uh, their monopoly collusion lawsuit against the NFL. That the NFL was holding monopoly on monopoly, but the judge awarded them like a dollar in in damages. Just so they won, but they him. lost. Yeah. Um, but two quarterbacks that were on the Arizona Outlaws when I was there. One um is a kid that I played against in college named Rick Neuheisel, who played at UCLA. And then and wasn't he the to, Colorado coach? He he had made a career as a as a coach and, and now is a uh, college football commentator on CBS and Rick's yep. a, like a really interesting, great guy. And then the lead quarterback was Doug Williams, who then went on to like lead the Washington Redskins to the Super Bowl and, and, and had an amazing career. And uh, like his notoriety uh, is that he was the first black quarterback uh, to, to get to the Super Bowl and win a Super Bowl game. And, and that guy, man, I'll tell you what, uh, that guy could throw a football through a block wall if he wanted to, you know, and then my, my receiver coach, when I was with the Arizona outlaws was one of my childhood idols. It was Fred Bolitnikoff, who was, uh, oh my God, who was the Raiders with yeah. the Raiders, you know? So growing up, you know, when I was at the schoolyard, uh, playing catch with my, with my friends and diving for balls in the grass, like I was always Fred Bolitnikoff. And then it turns out like he's actually coaching me. Didn't they used to say about Bolitnikoff too? He would have so much stick on his hands. He could catch a ball on the back of his hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was, he, he was a, a really interesting man and, uh, and a, um, just a, like a wonderful guy to be around. Like as a young man to like be in meeting rooms and on the field with, with a guy that you had idolized as a child, like every single word he said, I hung on it. Um, if he would have said, Jay, you want to make it the NFL, I need you to climb up on top of that building 
and jump off on your head, I would have asked him where the ladder is. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, again, and that's the other thing, too. That's I mean, that's stuff of legend. You know, when you think of the original mm-hmm. Oakland Raiders, you know, and guys like that, just Lyle Alzado, you know, just um, – the, well, you know, I think, you know, Morgan, out. in this in this big picture view that like we're discussing just of life. Um, so all these events, these football events, we're focused on this like football phase of the story right now. But it translates into it translated into my professional life as well. It's not so much the accomplishments. Um, it's the people. It's the people you cross paths with and the relationships you build and the people you get to know. Truly, in hindsight, that's what's important is the people. It's always the people. Yeah. And that's going to serve you well later too. Um, so you do a little bit of a stint in uh, CFL, USFL. When do you start realizing I got to go out and get a job? I mean, at what point does that not work out for you? And what's the next, what's the, you know, the next job you get, or what's the next adventure you have before we finally start looking at uh, ATF? If, if I was going to continue as a football player, it was going to be a very struggled existence. I was always going to be a bubble guy. I was always going to be a guy that was like, hanging there um, at the last cut, you know, is he or is he not going to make the team? And like, I had pretty much accomplished what I had set out to accomplish in football, like not not the ultimate goal, not the plan A goal. Um, But I was content with what I had accomplished. And like we said earlier, um, I left nothing on the table. Like I, I had taken it as far as I was capable of taking it. And like a lot of young people in life, you just get to a crossroads and it's time to like, you know, uh, like, like take that fork in the road and turn left instead of right and see where that road takes you. So where did the road take you? Well, you know, man, I was lost. I, I, I didn't really have a direction, but at the time, this is mid eighties now, at the time, the television show, Miami Vice, was was very popular and and we have heard this how many times murph i mean so, this has been such an influence on so many guests might, i don't know it might be my personal story here i'm not sure you, you know, were not it, sunny crockett dude <laughs> as an audience we had not seen a cop show like that before we were used to procedural shows where detectives showed up with with notebooks and asked questions. And one Adam Twelve, Dragnet, you know, exactly. Uniform guys, rea- they were reacting to crime. And now Sonny Crockett and Tubbs are being proactive. They're getting out in front of it with this undercover vibe. And so I'm watching that show, and I I watched it religiously. And you got Sonny Crockett, and he's dressed in a Hugo Boss suit. And he's driving a Lamborghini around South Beach and he's meeting with these glamorous drug kingpins and he's negotiating for tons of cocaine that's sitting, you know, in a barge off the harbor to bring in. And, you know, he's at these mansions and he's got these big titted stripper models bringing him mojitos and he's smoking cigarettes and he's just being super cool and watching that and, and, lots, and watching it from a lost perspective. I was like, man. Like that's super glamorous. That's really sexy. Like, like I can do that. I want to do, I wonder if I could do that. I want to try that. Now, fast forward later into my career, I realized that the Hugo Boss suit, like I had traded the Hugo Boss suit for a pair of cutoff camos and a wife beater t-shirt and flip-flops. And the Lamborghini in real life was a was a beat up 
1980 Malibu, you know, that was that was crashed in by the 15 agents that had had it before I had it handed down to me. And later to be your Mercury during your black biscuit operation. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the 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 super slick drug kingpin was some guy sitting at the end of the bar with his plumber's crack hanging out without two nickels to rub together to buy his next beer. Mm-hmm. That that ton of cocaine that Sonny was negotiating for, it was an eight ball that was so stepped on with baby laxative, you would shit before you'd get high off of it. <laughs> you know, and the and the stripper models that I saw on television, they were like these street skanks with three teeth in their head and tits like sweat socks with rocks in the toes. Oh, um, <laughs> And you know what the oh, thing is? I can't unsee that. Go ahead. <laughs> when I when I got past that false illusion that Hollywood had created for me of what law enforcement was and what undercover work was, when I saw that the Hollywood version of it that I had seen in Miami Vice was a hoax, and I saw the reality of it, I loved it. I loved every day of it. It didn't matter that it wasn't sexy. It didn't matter that it wasn't glamorous. The reality was that law enforcement and undercover work is a nasty, dirty, bloody, vomit-covered scab of a life, and I loved it. Well, let's talk about before you can love it, you got to get on the job. So um, you took the path, you made it, you, you know, like Yogi Berra said, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. So you took the fork in the road. What fork eventually led you to ATF? And did you apply anywhere else before? What were you looking at doing? And how did you end up on law enforcement? Because it doesn't sound like there was a law enforcement uh, thread running through your family or anything like that. There wasn't. I um, I wanted to work undercover and I became aware of of ATF's undercover program, which ATF ran a very dynamic under, undercover program that targeted violent crime within the jurisdiction of ATF. ATF's jurisdiction is the federal firearms and explosives and arson laws. And so firearms and explosives go hand in hand with violence. And so ATF's undercover program wasn't so much like chasing guns and bombs as it was chasing the violence associated with guns and bombs. And so like I wanted to, you know, from my perspective, I wanted to see if I could get good enough, if I had what it took to be a part of ATF's undercover cadre. Um, In my mind, like as in a baseball analogy, if I could have made that team, it would have been like playing shortstop for the Yankees. It was like, man, that's as good as it gets. And so um, I had other applications out. I was, I was looking to land a job. Um, the ATF job became available and I, and I jumped on it. It was, you know, it was a hand in a glove for me. How, and what year did you get hired on? I got hired um, in November of 1987. And um, I, th- I think I know where your next question's going. Um, I'm going to jump ahead and, and answer it before you ask it. You can cut me off if you need to. I wouldn't dare. So I got hired on a Monday. And, and I was now living my new plan A. It was actually like this unknown plan B, but it had evolved. Now, now it was my plan A. And now I had this new goal to become an undercover agent for ATF. So I get hired on a Monday 
I get sworn in, raise your right hand, you take your oath of office, you get issued some equipment. I didn't have any training. Four days later, on a Thursday, I was taken hostage in an arrest scenario. Uh, The suspect uh, held a gun to my head, ultimately shot me point blank in the back. The bullet went in my back. It blew through my lung. It narrowly missed my heart and it exited my chest. And so after four days on the job, I was laying in the dirt and grime and garbage and dog shit of this trailer park, bleeding to death, where the blood coming out of my chest was like you were holding your thumb over the end of a garden hose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and your audience may not be aware of this. You guys are aware of this. Like, you know, we get paid every two weeks is our pay cycle. I hadn't even gotten a paycheck yet. <laughs> I had a hole in my back, a hole in my chest. They took me to the emergency room. Like I had uh, a, a chest tube carved into my side. I had uh, uh, breathing apparatus down my throat. I had uh, cameras inserted in my groin that were looking for uh, bleeders. Um, and I hadn't even gotten a paycheck yet. Welcome to the ATF. Yeah. Hey, but let's <laughs> let's rewind a little bit too, because what that what it's in your book, and I think it's interesting because I want to ask you where this came from. You were lucky. I, when I say you were lucky, you weren't lucky that you were got shot, but you were lucky because he had the gun to your head, but you came up with a ruse to try and distract his attention and give your backup, which had arrived by that time. Obviously, they got the car surrounded. So walk us through what went through your mind in terms of how am I going to get out of this? Because like you said, you don't have any experience. I mean, you've got experience on football, which I think gives you that mental fortitude. But how did you come up with this plan and tell everybody what it was to say, hey, how am I going to get myself out of this? Well, I think that, you know, I pulled from some of those athletic experiences. Like, how do you react? Like in a sports environment, in a team environment, how do you react react when things are breaking bad? How do you react, you know, when, when it's treacherous and when it's perilous and when the game's on the line? Can you stay calm? Do you, do you, do you stay in your game plan or do you come apart? And, and individual athletes handle it different ways. Teams handle it different ways. People become unraveled. But the people that are successful, not just in, in law enforcement, in anything. I don't care if you're flying the space shuttle or if you're operating on people's brains or if you're uh, mopping the floor you know, in a warehouse and everything in between from business to families to everything else. The people that are most successful in life are problem solvers. The, the, like the people that are great problem solvers are the ones that rise to the top of whatever their profession is. And so I had a problem to solve. It was, it was a, it was a real time, serious life and death problem. So while I'm being held hostage, the suspect uh, stuffs me in a car that was near the arrest location. It was a two door Monte Carlo. And uh, he pushes me in the front seat. He climbed, pushes the, the 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 seat forward, climbs in the seat behind me, and now he's in the back seat of this of this Monte Carlo. I'm in the front driver's seat. He's holding the gun to my head, and he's screaming at me like, "Let's go, get me out of here." Well, at this point, my agent partners had now kind of arrived back at the hostage situation and had surrounded the car, and he the suspect is screaming at me. 
to drive away. The agents are screaming, you know, to release me and to give up. And I'm, my, my eyes and my focus are from my rearview mirror looking at the suspect behind me to the agents outside the car with their guns, with their guns out, all the commotion. I saw a telephone pole in front of us. And my first solution was, I'm going to buckle on my seatbelt and I'm going to drive this car as fast as I can into this telephone pole. That, that's one solution. So I reached for the keys and like a, like a plan B kind of popped in my head. I pulled the keys out of the ignition and dropped them to the floorboard. And I said, Ben, shit, drop the keys. And I leaned forward to pick up the keys, hoping that it was going to give my partners the opportunity to, to handle this business. And, and that's exactly what they did. Soon as that gun came off my head, it moved from my head to my back. Uh, the support agents opened fire. And it was like literally a five-second storm of lead and glass being blasted into that car. There were shots being fired inside the car. The, 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 the suspect fired a round into my back. But at the same time, agents were firing from both uh, side windows and the rear view and the rear window into the car, all at the suspect. I think um, in the end, there was plus or minus 20 rounds fired into that vehicle. Um, at that, at like literally within seconds where then, you know, the shooting ends, um, I get dragged out, I'm bleeding on the ground. They, they, they dragged the suspect out. And I mean, this dude was severely ventilated. Um, I mean, he, he already had a death rattle going and his eyes had already rolled back in his head. Uh, the agents then stuffed me back into the back seat of the Monte Carlo that we had just had the shooting in. And then my supervisor used that vehicle, the shooting vehicle, to race me to the emergency room. Wow. Did you not have any other choice? You probably didn't have any other cars right there, did they? Well, you know, and and, and we're heading to the uh, to the emergency room. And, and I recall uh, before I passed out, you know, the, my supervisor who was driving, like looking over his shoulder and he's driving and he's in and out of traffic and he's off on the shoulder and back on the street and off on the shoulder. And he's like, hang on, Jaybird, hang on, Jaybird. Like, I'm going to get you there. Hang on. And at that point, you know what? Like, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I cared. I was, I was saying uh, the Our Father prayer to myself, and and I was only thinking, uh, I was thinking about my mom and dad, and like how scared they were going to be, and how disappointed they were going to be that 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 I had let this happen. You, you think that's what they would have thought? Oh, you know what? In hindsight, uh, may, maybe, maybe not. But uh, you know, I would have, I would have broken their hearts. Um, I would have broken their hearts. I think that's true with all of us, though. You know, I was I was in law enforcement probably five years before my dad finally accepted I was going to be a cop. And it's not it's not that they don't like your career choice; they worry about your safety. Well, like but, uh, us as as agents and officers, and our families and our friends, you never think it's going to happen to you. Right. Those things yeah. always happen to someone else. And then for to have it happen on the fourth day, um, it it made no sense. Like I could, like my my mind could not process 
why that had happened and what was happening in real time. Well, let's go back and talk about that for a second, because uh, I have a couple questions for you. And actually, it comes out of your book, too. You said you made a rookie mistake that day in terms of your vest. I did. So the, the, we were on an arrest situation. The suspect sees us coming and runs. And, uh, and, and I'm in the chase. And we were in the suspect's neighborhood. He knew the neighborhood. It's like it was a really ratty trailer park. And he's zigging and zagging and, and disappears. He vanishes before my eyes. And so we as agents regroup. And sometimes, uh, you know, maybe even more times than not in law enforcement, the bad guy gets away. And, and, and you have to accept that and, and, and come up with a new strategy. And so we had lost him. Uh, we searched for him. And like it almost resigned like, hey, look, this guy's going to pop back up somewhere at some place. And so the search kind of continued loosely and we kind of were separated and became more individual searchers. The rookie mistake was that I took off my bulletproof vest. I removed my vest, like partly in frustration and for whatever reason. Why? Man, like I couldn't answer that question then. I can't answer it now. Why did you take your vest off, Jay? Man, I, I don't know. I don't know, other than just like not having any experience in that world. Mm -hmm. And I took my vest off. Well, I think that's what it is right there. It's, it's the experience, right? You're four days on the job. I mean, what are you expected to know four days on the job? Just because you got the badge and the gun and like Clint Eastwood said, the love of Jesus and your pretty blue eyes. You, don't ha you might have the badge and gun, but you don't have the years of experience like the other folks did too. So it's not a, it's not a, not, I mean, it's, I was the same way. You think you, oh, I'm a, I'm a cop now. I know everything. I'm going to go out. No, Skippy, hang on. You don't know shit yet. But for you to be put in that situation after four days, man, that had to be one hell of a way to think, is this how it's, is this how it's going to be every time I'm out? Well, I'll tell you what it, it translated to is that being so new and making mistakes because I was untrained and unexperienced. I'm in the hospital and I've literally got uh, liability attorneys like almost lining up in the hallway waiting to talk to me. Oh, it they was like be salivating. It was like they were at Home Depot, like take a number, yeah. like, hey, you know what? Like I'm now serving number 17, like bring up your return, you know? Here come the leaders. And they were coming in with this explanation like, Do, have you ever seen a million dollars? You know what a million dollars looks like? man, I'd never seen a million dollars. Like my dad was a carpenter. My mom was a house cleaner. Um, I lived in a blue collar family. I didn't know what a million dollars looked like. How about $5 million? They're like, you tell me how many zeros you want on that check and I'll go get it for you. And we will never see a courtroom. The agency has assumed so much liability and is in such a bad situation. They want you and they want this event to go away and they'll pay any amount of money that you want to make you vanish. And I like all I could think of, like I was all wired up and I was connected to medical equipment. And all I could think of was get out of my room. I know there is not a cop alive. You guys don't know a cop alive. I don't know a cop alive. Whoever took a badge or a gun with money on their mind. No one, no one becomes, no one becomes a participant in law enforcement ever thinking that they're going to become rich or famous. They do it for, for very different reasons. Right. My reasons hadn't changed. 
like that, that, that uh, vision or that uh, opportunity for big money, it was never part of the equation for me. I didn't take this job because I was trying to make money. I was taking the job because when I got a badge and a gun, I felt like my community and my agency had asked me, please stand up to the predators out there on behalf of those of us who either can't or won't do that for ourselves. I, like that was a huge responsibility to me. I, I took that super serious. I was, I was honored that my agency and that the community I served trusted me to take a stand on their behalf. That's, that's what I wanted to do. Not get rich. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. I can't imagine anybody who's even today takes the job going, Oh, look, I'm going to, I'm going to make a ton of money and I'm going to retire. But I want to circle back to one thing real quick. Just make a point. I know what you're saying, especially about disappointing the parents, but I remember one award ceremony I was going to, I think I was a detective. My mother um, would not go. She said, I just, cause she goes, I don't want to know. She, it was just too much for her. She says, I just don't want to know what it was. And it was kind of a violent thing, you know, and it's like, you don't do it for the awards either, but they give you some, but it's like, I want my sister showed up, my brother-in-law showed up, you know, but my mom says, no, I don't want to know. And that's that same feeling you get, you get, man, I don't want to just, you know, you feel like it's your personal responsibility that if you do something wrong, if I had gotten hurt, I would have felt like I'd, I'd let her down because I'm, I'm her only son. Well, I, I think the best demonstration of that is right here with us on this call is, is Steve himself. When, when Steve became a DEA agent, when he was handed a badge and a gun and given his assignment and given his tasks, there is no way, I'm answering the question for him and I've never asked him this, but I know what the answer is. There's no way he ever thought like, man, I'm gonna end up chasing Pablo all over Colombia, and then you know what? They're gonna make a television show about it, and I'm gonna be, and I'm gonna become a celebrity behind it. And there's gonna be books, and people are gonna to want to talk to me. He never, in his wildest dreams, imagined that that's where that would go. But it did. You're absolutely right. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Absolutely. And true. every week, Connie's got to just remind you: take out the trash, pal. You're not that important. Just and bring her something to drink. Bring her something to drink. Yeah. Well, you know what? I've got you know far less, far far less notoriety than Steve does. But you know what? I still got to go out and clean up the dog shit in the backyard. Oh yeah. Uh, life doesn't end. You know, That's life right. like life and the responsibilities and the circumstances of life um, are still there for Steve Murphy. I mean, oh, yeah. we, we know him through Narcos. But like life doesn't change. Like you like you still gotta wash the dishes, man. Hey, I had to I had to wax her car before we could start today's interview this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want got, pictures next time. I got one more question for you, Jay. So, you know, and uh, and this is cop humor for our listeners who don't quite understand us. But now you've already experienced once going towards the light. So after you've been shot, did you ever see that light? Oh man, did I see the light? That that that's like kind of an abstract question. Yes, I did. I ultimately saw the light, and um, I think we'll we'll get there, you know, in this discussion. But I saw the light. Um, I saw the light through God. Mm -hmm. I saw the light through my wife. I saw the light through my kids. The light is not necessarily like. Uh, 
It's uh, not a train at the end of the tunnel sometimes. And it's, it's not it's, a it's not the ear hole in your helmet. <laughs> it's you it's know, the equivalent of it, yeah. There's different versions of it. And and my yeah. light came through through God and my family. I, I I took a very rough path to ultimately see it. But yes, to answer your question, yes, I did see the light. You brought up something. Let's dive into this before. And people are going to wonder, why are we spending so much time doing this? Because one of the things, when Steve and I talked to you, and then also by reading your book, unless you understand where you came from, people don't understand why you did what you did and why you took the risks you did and why you work the cases the way you did them until they understand the backstory. It's like you could get in and just talk about your book. By the way, the book is called No Angel, My Harrowing Undercover Journey to the Inner Circle of the Hell's Angels by Jay Dobbins. Um, I got my copy on Amazon, so you can get it out there. Yeah, that's right. And we'll have it listed on our new book page uh, on there. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, but you mentioned God, and here's the contradiction people are going to look at. You're going to go, you swear a lot. You've done a lot of shit in your life. I mean, um, how, where does God come into this for you? And was it, did it take a shooting for you to come to that realization? Or, or, you know, because you talked about it later, and one of the guys we'll talk about too that's in your book, Mel Chancey, another guy who is um, converted, you know, and is just very humble guy. He could rip your head off if he wanted to, but very humble guy. But how did the, how did the equation of God come into this? It was it was a long path for me. Um, I I realized through uh, the the events of my life that the only time I was talking to God is when I needed a favor, is when I needed to be saved. That's when I prayed, when I had screwed something up and I needed a rescue. And then I ultimately realized that, like over the course of my life, I have made millions of mistakes. I've done millions of things wrong. But God has given me forgiveness a million and one times. Amen, brother. I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, this is, and again, when if people were to look at you, they would not associate that with you when they look, they see your tats, they see your book and everything. And that's why I said, I think one of the great things, this is why Steve and I love doing this, hearing your stories, because we learned, a lot, even though we did a pre-call with you, we're learning a lot of stuff about you that really now start going, oh, I get it now when I think about the story later on. So let's talk about that. Let's talk real quickly too about your recovery. So you know, Morgan, on the on the God side, just one yeah, more point. And absolutely. I and I think you guys uh and your your law enforcement community, that's the listeners, can relate to this. I, I think all of us have dozens, if not hundreds, of events that we look back on and say, I I could have or maybe should have died that day. Yep. Um, I, I think all of us do. It's the nature of the business. Um, I always looked at it like I've got God's hand on one shoulder and a gun on my hip. And between the two of those things, we'll figure out whatever comes. You know what? <clears throat> I'm with you, Jay. It's, I believe he has a plan for all of us. And your plan, his plan was not for you to die working undercover. It was not his plan for you to die getting shot. It's not your day. Yeah. Well, I'm trying There's to figure out God's plan. And, and the, the, the optimistic side of me says, that I'm still here because God still has work to do mm -hmm. through me somehow. Um, the pessimistic side says that he's keeping me around because he wants to continue the torture. <laughs> now, these are called, these, they, this, this is called uh, teaching, you know, the, the teachable moments. He's, he's mm -hmm. increasing your teachable moments. But last story, we'll move on. But, I, you know, the same thing as you. I just realized, too, I go, why am I still here? And it it, it involves things just as simple as do I walk up on the driver's side or the passenger side, stop the car late at night, and no old Camaro paper plates over permanent plate. 
and I'm the only guy out. I'm the only guy out for like two counties. My my closest backup is probably 30 minutes away, and I, and I stop this car. And, but I walk up on the passenger side and I shine my light in there. And when I do, the guy's got his hand on a sawed off 410. Mm-hmm. He was just, he was paroled out of Texas, started back into robberies, had robbed his way up the, the, from Texas through Oklahoma, you know, and it just, but it boiled down to that. It's like, why did I walk up on the passenger side that night? Cause we normally walk up on the driver's side and right. that's, right. but he ran off. We caught him the next day and, you know, um, but anyway, long story short is by you know, the grace of God. That is, man. Grace of God. And just, and that's the fork in the road, right? Do I go left to the driver's side, right to the passenger? I said, let me go to the passenger side tonight. Something just doesn't feel right. And it's that sixth sense. And how many dozens are more likely hundreds of people that we know that, uh, that their life ended with that fork in the road, with that, not, not even, you know, sometimes by a mistake. Sure. Not, not oftentimes, not even by a mistake. By chance, by circumstance, it's you come just... running around the corner and somebody shoots. I, I was uh, rode in the Law Enforcement United, you know, Police Week Memorial Ride, and I w- had the flag on the back of my bike uh, for an officer out of Anniston, Alabama, and his parents saw the flag out of all of the flags. And that's what happened to him. He came running around the corner chasing a suspect. The suspect waited for him, shot him in the head, lived three days on life support, you know, and uh, uh, again, it's just like the. Uh, there's just no words for it. Like you said, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I, we're still alive today to have this discussion. You, you guys understand it better than most. And, and the law enforcement audience out there that's listening, like every day cops across the country, and, and this is in the environment of defund the police and, and, and hatred towards law enforcement, for, like h- hatred towards people who are law enforcement, not towards the person, not towards the individual, but because of the profession that they chose, hatred for them. Um, every day, those guys have, and, and gals and women, have an alarm clock go off and they put their feet on the ground and they pour themselves a cup of coffee and they you know pour some uh, milk on their kids' Cheerios and they kiss their wife and their family goodbye, not knowing if that is gonna be the last time they ever see their kids. And they go out to defend and protect people that they don't know, that they know who resent them, that they know who are going to take pot shots at them or attempt to assassinate them or spit on them or or ambush them or ambush them. And they go anyways, and they still go knowing that that is how uh, many people in the communities they serve feel about them. And they still go. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. What the hell's wrong with us? (laughs) <laughs> well, I, 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 I try to comfort myself by saying um, the silent majority understands that. The vocal minority are the ones that, that rouse up the hatred. That like, and, and maybe that's true, maybe that's not true, but that's how I try to comfort myself, that most people do appreciate and understand that men and women every day go out there, put their lives on the line, risk never seeing their families again in order to protect someone else's family. Right. And, you know, I mean, just uh, the other day was Law Enforcement Appreciation Day here in the United States. And when we, I post things on social media just to recognize law enforcement, you know, and solicit public support. And you always get more hits on that than anything else we post. 
Yeah. And just, I want to put one fine point on this. We're, we're going to move on, but, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a proud member, a supporter of the Officer Down Memorial page, very similar to the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial. This is nonprofit. They go back, they catalog canines killed on the line of duty, officers killed. They've gone back and do that, including COVID. But you, you talk about you not knowing, and I want to, if people take a look, they just need to look up the name Marlena Roberta Ritam, uh, Ritam, Ritmanic, Ritmanic. She was a sergeant with the Bradley Police Department in Illinois. Here is a mother with kids. Her and her partner go up about loud music and animals in a car. Long story short, they when they open the door, they're ambushed by these folks. They wound her partner. She's pleading for her life. They shoot her in the head. They kill her. They execute her. And this is a mother who will never go home to see her kids again. And you say, why? And people say, well, why would you do a job like that? Well, if not us, then who? Who is going to do this job if we don't? Perfectly said. It's a calling. It I is get absolutely off, a calling. I got to get off my soapbox here, man. Well, let's let's lighten things up a little bit. Um, well, lighten up, you know. Um, so you've got a hole uh, from front to back, and now you're in the hospital. How? Here's the other thing, too. You told us about this. I'm thinking, you got a penetrating wound like that, goes through your lungs. I have been, I was uh, used to be an EMT in addition to a trooper and all that other stuff. I've watched chest tubes be inserted in the field. I've never had to do it and I've never had it done to me, but you had it done to you, pal. And then you recover from this. That number one chest tube has got to be the most excruciating thing for men to go through. Um, you know, and, but I thought you'd be out for months. You weren't. Well, you know what? So I arrive at the emergency room and they're wheeling me uh, on a gurney uh, towards the operating room. And so I'm looking up at a nurse who's pushing my, my stretcher and I asked her a very honest but very innocent question. I said, am I going to die? And she looked down and she said, um, you're hurt bad, baby. We don't know yet. And I was like, wrong answer. Like, lie to me right now. Yeah. Just tell me what I want to hear. So we get to the emergency room and I, like I couldn't breathe. I had a collapsed lung and, and my, my, my good lung was filling up with blood clots. I was choking. I couldn't breathe. And a doctor comes in. Um, that literally looked like he was 12 years old. Um, and he says, hey, um, I, like, I need a chest tube. And so they bring in the chest tube. And um, he's like, man, we got to hurry. So like, just bite the bullet on this. And he slices open my side oh. without anesthetic. Oh, um, well, but the, but the reason doing it, right, because you're literally drowning to death. You've got, you can't breathe. The blood is, is uh, your lung is collapsing. If they don't get that in there, you're going to die just from that alone. Absolutely. I was suffocating on my own blood. Um, so first things first, right? Like there was, uh, there was bleeders to deal with, but like they had to like, I, I had to oxygenate. ABC, um, airway, breathing, circulation. If you don't take care of the airway, everything else is uh, moot. So they're, they, they've got this, uh, this chest tube, which is this like clear plastic, like neoprene, like kind of fat, like, like almost like a one inch tube. And they're trying to push it in this, in this, in this incision that they've created to get it into like the lung cavity, which is being filled up with blood. So my lung can't expand and they're pushing it and they're pushing it. And it's like, they're struggling. I can tell they're struggling with it. And I hear the doctor say, like, I'm going to need some rib spreaders. And oh. I'm like, what are rib spreaders, man? Oh. Like, you know what? Well, rib spreaders are <laughs> oh like this two-pronged ratchet, almost like a socket wrench that they stick in between your ribs and then they ratchet it up and, and it spreads your ribs out. So it gives them room to insert the tube and they carve out the cartilage and 
they pop it all out. So finally they get it in and they turn it onto this suction pump. And I distinctly remember like that chest tube hitting that, that, that blood area in my chest cavity and the clots being sucked down this tube look like freaking stewed tomatoes, like go, getting dumped into a bucket. Jeez. Jeez. Oh, you and your, your, you were meant to write stuff because your you work descriptions between that and describing, you know, we're going to have nightmares like, tonight. I, I, you can't unsee this. Oh, It'll my be a God. monster blood clot trying to get me in my sleep tonight. I can see it coming. <laughs> a giant stewed tomatoes after you. <laughs> Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. That was a bad horror movie. Oh, how long were you? How long were you in recovery? Because I, you know, most people, you hear stuff like this. You go chest tubes shot like that. You got to be out six months. How long were you out? You know, I was. It, it was. It was relatively quick. I was in outstanding shape. I like. I. I you know, I had just come off uh, uh, an athletic career, um, and so I, like I was in really great shape. I was 26 years old. I was a young man. Um, I got shot on uh, November 19th, 1987, and I showed back up at work uh, the week before Christmas. So I showed up back at work. Like now I was still uh, in recovery. I wasn't really ready to go back to work, but um, I just wanted to get back to work. And I wanted to show my peers and my partners, like, man, like, yeah, a bullet went through my chest, but here I am, man, I'm fucking invincible. Like I'm back. Um, well, and that goes back to what your dad taught you. Get up. Get up, fight back, you know? So I came back to work and my supervisor is like, what are you doing here? It's like Christmas week. And I was like, like, I'm not supposed to be here. And he's like, dude, you have months of workers comp that you can use. Like you get 90 days free. You can extend that for another 90 and another 90 because you literally don't have to come back here for another year if you don't want to. And I was like, yeah, if I didn't want to, I want to be here. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what assignment you can give me right now. It's very limited, but give me something to do. Well, let me read a passage from your book, because this describes, uh, and again, you don't get this unless you've been this close, but you go, after being shot, I began to feel the first pangs of invincibility. The rush of death, near death, did something dangerous to me, though I couldn't see it at the time. I didn't want to get shot ever again, but I wanted to get as close to that flying bullet as I possibly could. Nothing makes you feel more alive than how close to death that you came. Yeah, I, I truly felt invincible. I felt bulletproof. Like it, it was uh, my own brainwashing, my own self brainwashing. But I was like, man, I had a bullet go through my chest. And, and here I am. I was like, like, it, it's not going to get any worse than this. There's, we all know um, lawmen who go through 25, 30 year careers and never break leather, you know, in a, in a, in a combat situation. You know, the only time they fire their gun is at the range in a training environment. Yeah. And, and bless their hearts, man. Like, like, that's awesome. We, we know that that is the norm, the abnorm. Uh, what was what was unique was that that event happened. It happened, you know, after four days on the job. Um, that that's what made it unique. I mean, people have, you know, survived thousands of times what I went through. But in my mind, man, I was bulletproof. Did you have any uh, lasting negative effects from, from that gunshot wound? 
No, nothing physical. Um, you know, like, like I, I notice it sometimes, like when I catch a cold, like I probably got some scar tissue, like in that mm -hmm. lung area, you know, like if I cough or whatever, nothing, uh, physical, I think there's like some mental, emotional, like PTSD elements to it. But like, I, I also think I've outgrown those, you know, that was at this point, what, 30 plus years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like, really the only time I think about that is like in a situation like this, where I'm like, like asked about it or, or, or answering questions about it. Otherwise, like I don't go through my day ever recalling that. Well, what we're glad we could bring those bad memories back today. <laughs> we're here for you. We're here for you. What do you do though on the anniversary of it? When the, when that day comes up, do you, uh, does it ring? I mean, does it, does it bother you? Do you think about it that day or have you gotten to the point where it's just another day now? No. Well, for many years, I threw a gigantic party. Um, uh, and it, and it, and and the 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 party my shooting parties like became fairly legendary in Tucson, um, and they typically ended with uh, me passed out like in the backyard. <laughs> but you're still alive though. That's the great part though, man. Um, We're glad you survived. Yeah, you might not survive the drinking that much. Murph Murph had to kick. <laughs> he said, "Ah, I've had enough." You know, I'm, meter says full. I got to stop. Yep. But hey, so. Before we start talking about Operation Black Biscuit, um, you how long does it take before you can actually go back to work? And at some point, you go through the uh, ATF, uh, and I will tell you from my time on the streets, but working with you guys, you had the best undercovers of anybody. I mean, you guys had it figured out. You had great training. Uh, not a knock against DEA, Murph, but ATF had really good UC stuff. Truth uh, is truth. Far better than the FBI because everybody worked undercover with the FBI showed up in a suit and tie. You can't do that. The farmers <laughs> will figure this out. Well, you, you know, like like I said, I was um, I was playing shortstop for the Yankees in 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 Copland, in my view, and um, with, with all the amazing undercover agents and officers that I crossed paths with and that I tried to learn from and I tried to emulate. Um, I, I was never, I never considered myself the best or even one of the best. Um, the, the biggest thing that I had going for me as a cop and, and specifically as an undercover agent was willingness. I was always willing to try. I was always willing to raise my hand and accept assignments that other people didn't want. They were either too dangerous or considered impossible or any of those things. I was always willing to try. I could never guarantee success, but I could always guarantee my best effort. Like I was willing to try. I think that's the, that is the mindset I was talking about. There are a lot of people don't want to try because they don't want to fail. I don't want to, you, but you, your point is it's about the effort. You're going to go out and just, I think that's where knowing about your football history and the things you did and even the combine, you gave it everything you had. There's nothing to be ashamed when you get out there and you've done everything you can it is what it is, but if you don't do the effort, that's what that's when you wake up the next day. And go well, look, I didn't, you know, I didn't really try, didn't do that. No, you really yeah. tried. Um, what was so? What's the progression? Like I said, before we get to Black Biscuit, and we'll talk about where the name came from too. What's your progression of getting back to work, getting training, you know, working cases before this comes up? Well, you know, uh, like, like to just touch back a little bit. There's a, a a a quote from a Greek philosopher that always like like hit home for me, and it says, uh, like I'll try to get this right. Of every 100 men in battle, 80 should never be there. Nine are great warriors. Um, 
but there is one and one of them will bring the others home. And I think that that's that mentality of us is that like for us in this job is like, we want to be that one. We want to be that one that survives it all and then carries our partners and our friends and our peers home with us. Um, so a, a, a very, uh, uh, may, uh, like maybe optimistic view of it, but it goes back to that willingness, Will, willingness to try. It's, it's Roosevelt's man in the arena that we're all familiar with. Like, Absolutely. Like, better to, you know, to have tried and be criticized and fail than to never have been willing um, or too fearful to try. Yeah. And, and that gets, that, that is a great story about, and that's a great, um, basically poem about the man in the arena, you know, uh, and you know, those who dare and those who try and fail are much better than those who never try at all because you, you've given it your all. You've tried that. Um, so between the time that you got on 1987 and 2001, which is when Black Biscuit starts, what kind of things were you involved with during that time? Cause you obviously, you started working UC. Was it just natural that when you say UC, it would be bikers, or did you work other types of cases during that time uh, in an undercover role? I, I pressed myself into every conceivable undercover assignment, regardless of what it was, regardless of what my role or contribution might be that I could find. I was constantly begging, like the veteran UCs, like, let me work with you. Let me watch you. Let me help you find a role for me. Um, I was constantly trying to learn. I was constantly studying what they did, how they did it, uh, where they succeeded, where they failed. I was, tr I was constantly processing lessons from the people I admired. Over the course of the 15 years between when I was shot and Operation Black Biscuit started, man, I had hundreds of undercover assignments from, from gun buys to drug buys to bomb buys, uh, uh, home invasion cases, murder for hire cases. Um, you know, like, like after I recovered from my shooting and I was in uh, Tucson, the shooting took place in Tucson and I, I wanted to work undercover. That's why I came to ATF. And I told my bosses like, man, I like, I want to get back to work. And their response was, well, like, if you're going to work undercover, you can't do it here. Like you played college football here. Now you've got all this notoriety from this shooting. Like you can't do it here. And I was like, well, then find some place where I can, because that's what I want to do. I was transferred to Chicago. Um, a year later in Chicago, um, on, an, on an undercover assignment, I was uh, run over and shot again, uh, like a year later. Uh, we did a reverse of some machine guns to some gangbangers in Joliet, Illinois. And during the arrest phase, like I was caught again in a bad spot during the arrest phase. And as the suspects tried to escape, um, they ran me down with their vehicle. And I, like I shot the driver and was shot this time smart enough to leave my vest on, shot in the vest and, and flipped over the car and was pretty chewed up from that event too. So like within the course of 18 months, I'd been in two like violent combat shootings. Um, and I just came back to work and just kept trying to find opportunities to grow and to learn. And to, um, like I said, I was never the best undercover out there. I can name dozens of agents and officers who I view 
uh, as being better in that trade craft. I was just always willing to try. Yeah, but and we call that a bullet magnet. Oh yeah, I mean, well, shit magnet too, man. It's, it's stuff happens around <laughs> you, you know. Well, you know what? You know what happens though to the bullet magnets out there, the quote unquote bullet magnets, the shit magnets that we all know. Mm -hmm. um, typically, there are people that um, are are constantly forcing themselves, you know, into risky, perilous situations. Right. Um, sometimes ill advised, sometimes without the best common sense. Like um, that applies to me. Um, I, like I was constantly trying to push the envelope. I was like, like, and, and many times blew through the envelope. And many times when you blow through the envelope, especially as an ATF agent, you find yourself sitting before a review panel where your conduct and your decisions are uh, being evaluated by people that wear uh, neckties and cufflinks to work. And they're reading from a policy manual and they're saying, man, this is outside of policy. This is outside of procedure. Yeah. And, and yes, sometimes it was, um, like I'm trying to make like street decisions and it doesn't always fit on, you know, in the notebook that you're carrying. You know, that is a familiar refrain. You talk to a lot of cops who've been in through review boards or something else. And, you know, um, it's just amazing that people think that they get promoted into a position and it gives them this wisdom to know everything that goes on. And it's like, I remember doing a project, I won't say where, but had a lot of executives in there from, you know, a lot of different agencies. And, you know, the thing was, you look at them, I had more time on the street than all of the people in the room combined. And my question to one of them one time is, when's the last time you put a set of cuffs on anybody? When's the last time you were actually out there to write a report and make an arrest? Many of these people had never done it. They had just done some admin position, worked their way up. And to your point, it's different when you're on the field making and calling an audible to use a football analogy. And you got it. You 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 play what that you play what you're given. You can't always go back. Well, I can't do that because policy says that. You know, when we talk about blast. Black biscuit, and I'm just thinking through ahead of some of the scenarios. If you had done everything by policy, you never would have made that up. Op that operation never would have worked if you'd done everything by policy. And I'm thinking of the day that uh, you got your ass chewed out by your boss because you weren't checking in like you were supposed to, and uh, slats, you know, he chewed your ass out really bad. Well, I'll tell you, like on a, a big picture view of this theme, is that uh, the the upside, one of the upsides, there were many of the shootings I was in. Um, because of the way they went down and because they happened so early in my career and my willingness and my desire to come back, like there was a point in time early in my career where I was ATF's golden boy. Like I'd been shot twice. I'd been, you know, and I just kept coming and I kept charging and, 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 and that was admired. The downside to that is that I knew that I was the golden boy or perceived as the golden boy. And I was disrespectful of that. And I um, too many times ignored policies and ignored procedures with this uh, false mindset that, man, they're not going to fire me. They're not going to do anything to me. Look what I've been through. They can't get rid of me. There's no way they, with a clear conscience, they can fire Jay Dobbins. Um, and, and that worked against me. I had a supervisor at one point say, you know what, dude, you went from being a star with us like right now, your internal affairs wet dream. We have a whole freaking task force that's built just to chase you and all your policy and procedure violations. And, and my problem was, is that those policies and procedures, and I tell young agents this, are there for a reason. And they're there to keep you safe. 
and they're there to keep you healthy and they're there to protect the agency. And like, don't do what I did. Don't disrespect those policies and procedures. Like follow the rules, play by the game as, as the rules are set. Um, because you know what, like, like I treated ATF's policies and procedures instead of a rule, I treated them as a guide, a suggestion. Um, this is, well, we're suggesting that you should follow this policy and procedure. It's not a suggestion. It's the law in the eyes of the people that run the agency. Yeah, Murph, I'm just thinking back to some days in Columbia. Don't leave the base. Don't, you know, stay at Carlos Holguin. You and what boss. <laughs> That's right. Now, yeah. but, but let me. And could you have chosen to not, uh, not, not follow that policy, that procedure? Yeah, you could have. You know what? But then the end game, the result that those same people that want to hold you to task for, for the success that was created by skewing outside the envelope, when it goes good, they're going to be the first one standing in front of a podium taking credit for the work you did. But the second it goes bad, you are all on your own and you are self-accountable for the decisions you make. You're oh, a man yeah. without a country at that point. But You're not kidding. Yeah, let me put a, a fine point on. There's a difference between intentionally ignoring policies just because you can because you're you know thumbing your nose at people and what I was getting at. But when you're out in the field and have to make an operational decision, you know, and it, you're just dealt a crappy hand and you play the hand, yeah, w might you violate some policy at that point? But you do it with the knowledge is that what I'm doing is either protecting somebody, saving the operation, you know, or getting myself out of there, you know, safely. So I wanted to make a distinction that there's a difference between, I think, and I'm not trying to speak for you, but I'm saying there's a difference between just saying, hey, I'm the golden boy, I can do whatever I want, but or the difference between I'm in a really tough situation, no matter what I do, somebody's not going to like it, but I got to make the best choice I can to serve the needs of the operation to keep people safe, you know, and execute on this. You know, uh, my problem, one of many, is there's times when I um, uh, probably regretfully made conscious decisions that I was going to go outside policy with a real-time street decision. Um, but I did it knowing that like when this gets found out, when this is exposed, when this is captured in a report, there's going to be hell to pay and I'm doing it anyways. Now, is that the best way to conduct yourself? It's probably not. I would not suggest anybody operate that way. Um, I'm like, man, like learn from my lesson. Don't reinvent the wheel that I invented because it breaks. It does like, like, don't do that. Like play by the rules. Well, let's let's talk about that now. Let's let's move forward. Well, Steve's going no, no. <laughs> what? what? No, I'll just say it. It's uh, I'm I'm being a smart ass. Yeah, you're being a smart ass because you're you're down in Florida now, and you can afford to be because you're wearing shorts. By the way, right. what's your temperature right now in Arizona, Jay? It's going to be 75 today. I'm I'm looking at uh, some golfers uh, outside my backyard um, in shorts and t-shirts. We're only going to hit 72. Sorry, I'm more there now. Uh, we're at 45 and we're going to get maybe eight to 12 inches of snow this weekend. So we will, we will just deal forward with it. So let's talk about black biscuit, but first of all, let's go back and talk. There's one thing too. It's your, it's your UC name. One of the things with undercover and you guys are better. I mean, you're better at this than uh, I am for sure. But one thing I've always learned too, is you want to tell as much of the truth as you can, because it's too hard to keep the lies going or the deceptions going. 
but you used Jay, but where did the name Jaybird, how soon in your career, or was that a nickname from college? When did you start using Jaybird? Yeah, I didn't start using it, you know, until like commonly until I was in an undercover role, but I had been Jaybird since I was a kid. I had an uncle who called me Jaybird and like, you know, it just had kind of resurfaced when I needed it for a part of a cover story. But, but Morgan, you're spot on. Um, It's been my experience that um, when you're building a false persona, when you're building your cover story, your personal cover story, that you keep it as close to the truth as possible. You keep that lie small. Um, You take real life events, you take real life experiences, and you put just a little twist on them to uh, to to build your cover story, because then in essence, you're you're really not lying. You're you're telling uh, a fabricated version of the truth, and it makes it easy to lie. I don't want people to just gloss by this because bad guys are good at seeing through bullshit too. And if it looks like you're bullshitting somebody, especially when you're dealing with somebody like the Hells Angels, and you don't have a solid story, and you don't believe your own story people start picking up on it. And one of the things I thought was really cool, let's start getting into the operation now because you guys would have, in a sense, what we used to call murder boards. You'd be come in and people would quiz you as though they were the real you know, hell's angels or the real bad guys and see, will you crack? Will you uh, lose your way? Will you flinch? You know, It's like if I ask you your real story about going through football and everything, you say it with such conviction because you lived it. But if you had to create a story about being involved in football, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts there. So I, I just what, the reason I'm saying that is I'm just complimenting you on the fact is the ability, the way that you're able to keep the story going as you guys start thinking about, hey, we've got to start, you know, we've got a new operation coming. You're now, what was it, Jay Nelson? Jay Davis. And Jay Davis, Davis was my my grandmother's maiden name. So even that wasn't too much of a stretch. Of even course not. Then there's Al Davis that. too, because that's probably an homage right. to Al Davis. I'm the fastest slow guy you've seen. Yeah. And he was right. I'll tell you, though, you know what, like it, in the criminal community, not just in biker land, in, in anybody, in in, uh, in in the drug world, in whatever that criminal set is, they're uh, typically, they're uniquely paranoid. And, and they're paranoid for very good reason. They have to be paranoid. That's how they stay out of prison. That's how they stay out of jail. That's how they stay out of handcuffs. They don't, uh, they're not quick to trust people. And so... If you're going to be going toe to toe, real time on the street with people who are uniquely paranoid, and when I say uniquely paranoid, they look at like what you say, how you dress, how you walk, what kind of car you drive, how you drive it, how you communicate with people, who your friends are, where do you live, what did what do your living conditions look like? Every single aspect of your life from the macro to the micro is being examined. They're looking for a chink in your armor. They're looking for something to feed that paranoia. And so uh, in an undercover role, we're trying to answer all those questions before they're asked. And when they are asked, you have to have comfort and confidence in your response. Because if you don't believe it, how are you going to sell someone else to believe it? You know, and it can be, it's... All those areas you covered are exactly right. It can be as something as simple as backing into a parking place when you park. Because most people in the world do not back in. They pull in. Cops back in. (laughs) 
All you got to do is drive through a Denny's or a Waffle House, which we'll talk about later. When you see cars backed in, you know, that catches your attention or you walk in and everybody's got their back to the wall. You go, did I just walk in on a cop convention? You know, body language is huge. The unspoken is huge. Um, especially guys that come off of like patrol assignments into undercover situations. And they're used to a certain body language. They're they're used to a certain body position. A where swagger. They, where they blade Yep. To a uh, to a suspect, and they and they keep their strong hand, their gun hand away, and they do all those things. You know, th those are little tiny unspoken body language hints mm -hmm. that um, you have to overcome. Like one of the techniques that I've ultimately learned to use, um, if I walked into an a, like an uncomfortable uh, uncomfortable environment, there's a lot of times where I would like come in, introduce myself, say hi, like lay down on the floor kick my feet up on a, on a chair and say, man, you know what? My back is killing me right now and light a cigarette and negotiate from my back. Now, any tactical person is going to say, dude, you, you've given up everything. You've given up every potential reaction advantage that you might have. I'm like, yeah, that's true. But I've also created the illusion that like, I'm so comfortable and I'm so confident. And the suspects are looking at me like, who the fuck does this guy think he is walking in here and laying down on the floor and lighting a cigarette? Um, so, so with every plus, there's a minus. And, and I get that. The problem is for us in law enforcement, like from guys in uniform to guys working undercover, the bad guy's always going to get the first shot. They always get the first draw, and you cannot you cannot outdraw a trigger squeeze. So nope. let's try to avoid getting to the point where you got a gun pointed in your face. Let's try to see if we can get around that right off the bat. Yeah, absolutely. Because that you can't again. That's only that shits for the movies. Doc Holliday outdrawn. You know, um, it's action versus reaction. Yeah. Just always faster to always faster to act than it is to react. Bad guys are always going to get the first shot, and you cannot outdraw a trigger squeeze. Truer words never spoken. Well, let's let's start working into Black Biscuit now because, like you say, you've got about 14, 15 years on. You've worked a lot of different cases. What let's lay the groundwork then for how this comes about. So what is going on at your point in your career or the cases you're working to where this starts coming up? Because you have now since moved back to the Arizona area. Is that right? Yeah, I had been, uh, I had moved to Chicago. I had come back to Arizona. I was operating in Arizona. Like we said earlier, I like was doing, you know, like a lot of violent crime cases, guns, drugs, bombs, home invasions, murder for hires. And at the time that Black Biscuit was set to kick off, I was working uh, in the Bullhead City area, which is directly across the Colorado River from Laughlin, Nevada and about 90 miles south of Las Vegas. And so I people was, put a pin in that too, because we'll come back and talk about Laughlin, because that is a big piece of what goes on for you. So I was, um, I was, I was in role uh, in, on, a, on a fairly complex case up there, uh, playing the role of a gun runner and a debt collector. Um, and I was buying guns and I was meeting uh, violent crime suspects and, and, and just running and gunning, smoking and joking with these guys. And two events took place in the Hells Angels world within that same uh, time window that were critical to the kickoff of Black Biscuit. Um, a, a woman 
uh, in the Phoenix area named Cynthia Garcia was uh, befriended by some Hells Angels. They took her to the Hells Angels clubhouse in Mesa, Arizona. One thing led to another, and there was this, a dispute in the clubhouse. This uh, Cynthia Garcia like went there basically like naively to party with the Hells Angels, thinking that it would be fun and glamorous and sexy and 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 stepping into the danger zone. And uh, she insulted the Hells Angels during this this like kind of one woman party at their clubhouse, and they beat her to the brink of death on the floor of the Mesa clubhouse. Then they stuffed her in the trunk of a car. They drove her to the desert outside of Mesa in a town called Apache Junction, Arizona. They dropped her body in the desert and they cut her head off with buck knives, three Hells Angels. So her body was later discovered. It was later the Hells Angels were suspected. So that was an event that was like hanging out there that, you know, like needed to be addressed by law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Like, like who killed this woman? Why? And why so brutally? And why so violently? And like, why, like, why, like, like take her head off her body? Like, you know, like, like who, like, what kind of people are we dealing with? Was there an immediate connection back to Hell's Angels or did that come later? Did you know it was, they were uh, tied to it or involved? It, 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 we knew that they were at least suspected in involvement of it because of, you know, traditional investigative work by homicide guys that um, had had kind of tied her together, being seen with Hell's Angels before she was murdered and found. And and so it, it was it was by far from being solved. But uh, and, and who the players were were still a mystery, but th they were strongly suspected of being involved in this beheading death of Cynthia Garcia. So did that kind of serve then as the impetus to say, look, guys, we got to do something. We got to pull something coordinated together and go after HA in Arizona. Well, that and in conjunction with and, and, and we mentioned this earlier um, across the river from my undercover house in Bullhead City, Arizona is Laughlin, Nevada. And there's a, uh, a big biker run, a big biker rally called the Laughlin River Run that's held every year that like thousands of bikers, both like outlaw bikers and civilian bikers attend. And it is uh, the West Coast's biker Mardi Gras. Um, parties, bands, uh, uh, vendors. Um, well, the Hells Angels are at the Laughlin River Run. At the same time, the Mongols motorcycle gang is at the Laughlin River Run. And they were like longstanding blood rivals, um, the Hells Angels and the Mongols. So during the course of this event, there had been various confrontations on the street. There had been various uh, disputes, nothing that had erupted or blown out of control yet. And on the night of the, uh, of the key event, uh, the Mongols' home base was the Harrah's Hotel Casino in Laughlin. Uh, the Hells Angels were down the road at the Flamingo Hotel um, in Laughlin. Some Hells Angels went over to the to the Harrah's to basically uh, intimidate uh, the Mongols and show that they were fearless and show that like they considered like all this territory their territory and they were going to go where they wanted to do and do what they wanted to do. Uh, one thing led to another. And it resulted in uh, the Harrah's riot, which was a full-on riot. There's really no other way to describe it between the Hells Angels and the Mongols, but it took place 
amongst all the, the, the citizens and the common folk that were in the casino. There were shootings, there were guns out, stabbings, beatings. Uh, three people were, were murdered, all captured on close circuit television cameras. Anybody that's been in a casino knows how many cameras are there watching the activity of, of the casino. All of the whole riot was captured on closed circuit television. Uh, it was such a, a, a event and a public event, it became national news. So you can, when you, when you tie together the River Run riot with the murder of Cynthia Garcia, those were two critical elements where an ATF case agent in, in Phoenix named Joe Slatella decided like along those same lines that we touched earlier on in our conversation, like I've got to do something about this. Like I've got, I've got to engage this and see what I can do. So Joe Slatella as the case agent, like kind of came up with this master plan to try to like investigate Hell's Angels violence. Now, when did, when did the actual operation kick off? Because, um, did it started forming because the uh, Laughlin riot was April of 2002, but some of this had kicked off earlier. In fact, I think if your book, uh, my memory serves me right, didn't you say some of this started planning? You were you thought that because of what happened with 9-11, you know, just a few months earlier, that that was going to put the kibosh on the entire operation. We were we were we were edging edging towards this uh, investigation of the Hell's Angels. Um, it was not full blown yet. The Hell's Angels were like basically operating with impunity of violence. Uh, they were just, they were kind of doing whatever they wanted to. And the, like there was not much accountability for them. Um, like back in the story, like I had an established criminal reputation uh, from working this debt collector gun runner case in Bullhead City. So I had begun to establish friendships and relationships within the Hells Angels. Um, during my time in Bullhead City, I was crossing paths with them. And I was actually in Laughlin the night of the uh, River Run riot, um, was, was partying with the Hells Angels when they left the Flamingo Hotel and went over to the Harris Hotel for the shootout. Um, and then actually, uh, members of the Hells Angels uh, escaped after the River Run riot to my undercover house in Bullhead City had crossed the river. The after the after the riot went down, law enforcement closed Casino Drive and closed the bridges over the Colorado River out of Nevada into Arizona. And there was dudes who were involved in this riot who were trapped in in Laughlin. They that like you couldn't escape. The the cops had all the exits in and out of the city blocked. Hell's Angels stole boats from from places in Laughlin and crossed the river on boats to get to Bullhead City. Some of them ended up landing at at my undercover house, which was a, a, a safe haven for them. What they what they believed was a, a friendly location. Uh, one of them actually left one of the murder weapons, one of the one of the weapons that was involved in the in the shooting at the riot at my undercover house and and asked me to hold it for him because he didn't want to get caught with it. Like they were walking, they, like like I didn't lure them into the trap. They walked into their own trap. Did you get out of Laughlin before they closed the bridges and so you were at the house when they showed up? I did. I had uh, I had gotten out of uh, 
out of Laughlin before the uh, law enforcement had locked down the city. Mm -hmm. So I was back at my undercover house in Bullhead City, like actually kind of as we were learning exactly what was taking place. Now, what about uh, a lot of the members? Because, you know, obviously their bikes are just an extension of them. You said that they took boats over there. What did they do about the bikes? Did they leave them behind? Did they take them with them? They, yeah, no, they got, they got seized. They, I mean, there was hundreds of motorcycles seized um, by law enforcement. Everything was impounded. Um, kind of an interesting side story, talking about, um, like I was in this kind of remote undercover role when this event took place. So the, the, the shooting, take, the, the, the riot takes place. The next day, um, I had a, uh, a bomb deal scheduled in Bullhead City. Um, so this massive shooting takes place that sucks every law enforcement resource to, to investigate this crime. Well, I've got this pending bomb deal the next day. And I'm telling my bosses like, hey, man, I'm on schedule to go buy some bombs from this dude at a, at a, uh, a machine shop. And they were like, dude, like that ain't happening, man. Like there's no one left available. Every resource, every man uh, is, is working this shooting. And so me and another agent, like we just basically went out on our own in the midst of the Laughlin riot while, while everyone was focused on that and went and bought some bombs the next day from a, from a suspect in Bullhead City. <laughs> hey, man, no life cover. goes on. Yeah. No it, it does. It does. And it's like, so, okay, so there's this giant riot and there's this stuff like that. That doesn't mean that everything else came to an end. It appeared that it did. But that that's doesn't you, mean that everything else came to an end. There was still work to do. That's why you tell the guy you're buying bombs from. This is the best time to do business. All the cops are over in Laughlin. It's, you know, clear sailing here right now. Trust me, that was one of the lines is like, you know what? If you ever felt comfortable, feel comfortable today because there's no eyes on us right now. Oh, the, the bad part for you is you have no cover out there. Yeah, you know what? And, and again, uh, like coming back into like some of those failed decisions on my part, um, I operated a lot of times. Uh, without a cover team, um, which which was outside of policy, outside of procedure, uh, pushing forward on the investigation. Uh, was it safe? No. Was it sound? No. Was did, did it did it apply common sense or logic or reason? No. Um, a lot of times I did it anyways. Um, and yet, you know, like you guys both know this, I had a view of cover teams. I had a vision of cover or, or like a a mentality of what cover teams were and. Trust me, I had some great cover teams. I had cover teams that came and rescued me and saved my ass many times. But I always, my mentality was that I was on my own. I never relied um, or put all my eggs in the cover team basket. I wanted to solve my own problems. I always thought that a cover team, the best they are going to do if I get shot up is come in, break the door down, like deliver some street justice for my murder and hose my brains off the porch. That was the mentality I had. Like, don't rely on these dudes. I know they're coming and they're going to come with everything they have. And they're going to use all their expertise and all their skill and all their tradecraft to do their job. But don't rely on them. Rely on you, Jay. Solve your own problems. Well, not to mention too the the kill units they break down the cameras stop working. There's a there's a thousand different things that can go wrong that usually do go wrong when it comes to doing surveillance. 
Yeah. The wire dies. Someone doesn't see the, the visual signal. They don't hear the bus signal, you know, and you're sitting there with your thumb up your ass waiting for someone to come and rescue you. And they ain't coming. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two's coming out on Thursday. As always, there is some great stuff in this next episode with Jaybird. He really gets into the Hells Angels investigation, talks about the impact on his family and what happened between him and the ATF. In the meantime, go visit our webpage, gameofcrimespodcast.com. we got a lot of pictures of Jaybird there, plus our book list. His two books that we will be talking about are on there. Also, go visit us at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, make sure you go visit us on patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. There is a lot of great stuff there, just like there's a lot of great stuff coming out this next Thursday. So stay tuned for part two of Jay Dobbins. <laughs>